as the absence of judgment, and of judgment as the absence of love. And we Christians, too, have adopted these definitions. Like the world around us, we too often think of love as the absence of judgment and of judgment as the absence of love. Yet throughout the Bible, we see how for God, love and judgment are not opposite extremes, but two sides of the same coin. Because God performs both actions in order to bring his people to himself. We are in Sermon 5 in a series of sermons that unpacks the book of Hosea. Next week will be our last sermon in the series. And the text where love and judgment comes most clearly into focus are chapters 11 through 13 in the book of Hosea. I encourage you to open scripture to Hosea, chapters 11, 12, and 13. If you're using one of the Bibles provided in the chair in front of you, you may find this passage on page number 790, 790. Most of you may be reading from the NIV. I will be reading God's Word this morning from the English Standard Version. And this is God's Word for us this morning. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with bands of love. And I became to them as the one who eases the yoke on their jaws. I bent down to them and fed them. They shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king, because they have refused to return to me. The sword shall rage against their cities and consume the bars of their gates and devour them because of, the, because of their own counsel. My people are bent on turning away from me, and though they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise them up at all. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? And how can, you, can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Atmah? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion go, grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. They shall go, they shall go after the Lord. He will roar like a lion. When he roars, his children shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria, and I will return them to their homes, declares the Lord. Ephraim has surrounded me with lies and the house of Israel with deceit, but Judah still walks with God 
and is faithful to his Holy One. Ephraim feeds on the wind and pursues the east wind all day long. They multiply falsehood and violence. They make a covenant with Assyria and oil is carried to Egypt. The Lord has an indictment against Judah and will punish Jacob according to his ways. He will repay him according to his deeds. In the womb, he took his brother by the heel and in his manhood, he strove with God. He strove with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought his favor. He met God at Bethel, and there God spoke with us. The Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord is his memorial name. So you, by the help of your God, return, return hold fast to love and justice, and wait continually for your God. A merchant in whose hands are false balances, he loves to oppress. Ephraim has said, Ah, but I am rich. I have found wealth for myself. In all my labors they cannot find in me iniquity or sin. I am the Lord your God, from the land of Egypt. I will again make you dwell in tents, as in the days of the appointed feast. I spoke to the prophets. It was I who multiplied visions, and through the prophets they gave parables. If there is iniquity in Gilead, they shall surely come to nothing. In Gilgal they sacrifice bulls. Their altars are also like stone heaps on the furrows of the field. Jacob fled to the land of Aram. There Israel served for a wife, and for a wife he guarded sheep. By a prophet the Lord brought Israel up from Egypt, and by a prophet he was guarded. Ephraim has given bitter provocation, so his Lord will leave his blood guilt on him and will repay him for his disgraceful deeds. When Ephraim spoke, there was trembling. He was exalted in Israel, but he incurred guilt through Baal and died. And now they sin more and more and make for themselves metal images, idols skillfully made of their silver, all of them the work of craftsmen. It is said of them, those who offer human sacrifices kiss calves. Therefore, they shall be like the morning mist or like the dew that goes early away, like the chaff that swirls from the threshing floor or like smoke from a window. But I am the Lord your God from the land of Egypt. You know no God but me, and beside me there is no Savior. It was I who knew you in the wilderness, in the land of drought. But when they had grazed, they became full. They were filled, and their heart, were, their heart was filled up. Therefore they forgot me. So I am like a lion to them. Like a leopard I will lurk beside the way. I will fall upon them like a bear robbed of her cubs. I will tear open her, their breast, and there I will devour them like a lion, and a wild beast would rip them open. He destroys you, O Israel, for you are against me, against your helper. Where now is your king to save you in all your cities? 
Where are all your rulers, those of whom you said, Give me a king and princes? I gave you a king in my anger, and I took him away in my wrath. The iniquity of Ephraim is bound up. His sin is kept in store. The pangs of childbirth come for him, but he is an unwise son, for at the right time he does not present himself at the opening of the womb. Shall I ransom them from the power of Shaul? Shall I redeem them from death? O death, where are your plagues? O Shaul, where is your sting? Compassion is hidden from my eyes. Though he may flourish among his brothers, the east wind, the wind of the Lord, shall come, rising from the wilderness, and his fountain shall dry up, his spring shall be parched, it shall be stripped, his treasury of every precious thing. Samaria shall bear her guilt, because she has rebelled against her God. They shall fall by the sword, their little ones shall be dashed in pieces, and their pregnant women ripped open. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray for our hearts and for this word that we heard today. O oh, gracious God, we thank you that you love us even in judgment. And we pray now that as we have heard this word, as we seek to approach you, as we seek to hear from you, we pray that we would have hearts open to hear. We pray this in the name of Jesus and through the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, for those of you who have not been with us in the last few weeks, I want to remind you how the book of Hosea started. The first three chapters started with a picture of the prophet of God being called by God to marry a prostitute and to stay with a prostitute even though she continued in her prostitution after being married. A prophet who was asked by God to raise children out of prostitution. And then after many times, after time and again of, of unfaithfulness, God asked this prophet to go and love his wife, his prostitute wife, again. This difficult picture, this radical picture of a very hard family life is a picture of God's relationship to Israel. It's a portrayal of the difficult condition of Israel's spiritual condition. Israel has become the prostitute in her spiritual condition. And God is now showing to us how he continues to pursue his unfaithful wife even though she, time and again, continued to remain unfaithful to him. God would not give up on his people, even in the midst of judgment, even in the midst of the unfaithfulness of his, his wife. In chapters 4 and 5 of this book, we have seen a picture of how God confronted Israel of their spiritual unfaithfulness, what that unfaithfulness looked like. Then in chapters 6, 7, and 8, we saw a picture of false repentance and God warning Israel of not falling into false repentance. And then in chapters 9 and 10, God described to Israel the price 
for their spiritual unfaithfulness. In chapters 9 and 10, uh, we saw lots of pictures, graphic pictures of disaster and judgment because of Israel's unfaithfulness. And because sin, all sin, every sin, has a huge price tag. As Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death. And that is the message that Hosea told the Israelites in very graphic pictures. It's easier to listen to Romans 6.23. It's not as graphic. The wages of sin is death. It is way more difficult to hear two or three chapters of ongoing judgment and destruction. And we wonder, how could those chapters be in the Bible? They've been in the Bible from the beginning to the end. It's just that the Old Testament and the book of Revelation has very graphic pictures of the destruction God will bring because of our sin. Throughout this book, there's been so much talk about judgment that anyone would wonder and would be inclined to ask, does God still love his people? Or, if God is bringing so much destruction upon his land, did he ever love them? Or, where is the picture of God's love which he presented in the first three chapters of this book? Well, today's chapters, today's text, will answer these questions. Love and judgment. And we will look at three parts in this message. Love before judgment, love in judgment, and love through judgment. Love before judgment, love in judgment, and love through judgment. Israel needed an important reminder that God loved them even in the midst of all this judgment. And he does so, God reminds Israel of his love by giving two images. An image from parenthood and an image from farming. Look at verse 1 in chapter 11. And remember the destruction that was looming for the last two or three chapters in the book of Hosea. And here's how chapter 11 begins. When Israel was a child... I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Now, the act of God calling out Israel from Egypt was a sign of God's love for Israel. And Hosea reminds the people that God loved Israel, not because of what Israel has done, but because, simply because Israel was God's child. God birthed Israel by rescuing from slavery. God created and initiated this love relationship. And notice what God did to Israel in their infancy. Look at verse 3. God was the one who taught them how to walk. Can you imagine? Can you picture? God took them by their arms, and God healed them, but Israel did not know it. Now, throughout Hosea, God pictures his love for his people through their relationship of marriage. But here in chapter 11, something very unique is happening. The picture changes from marital love to parental love. God began loving Israel when Israel was a child. Now this change from marital love to parental love is to point out 
God's initiation of loving his son Israel. Children are the recipients of their parents' love. They are the dependents on their parents for everything, yet without knowing how to love back. In a marriage relationship, the love is mutual, or it's supposed to be mutual. But in a parental relationship, it starts as a one-way street. The love of a parent for his child is not caused by what the child does, but simply by who the child is, namely the offspring of the parent. And in chapter 4, the imagery changes from the love of a parent to the love of a farmer for his animals. Look at verse 4. God led them with cords of kindness and with bands of love. And he became to them as the one who eased the yoke on their jaws. What a beautiful picture of a farmer who comes to his animals and, and eases the yoke from the jaws of the animal. God taking the yoke upon himself to make it easier on these animals. Remember Jesus teaching us to take his yoke upon ourselves because his yoke is easy and light. God here is taking the yoke of his people so their yoke would not be as hard on them than God himself bending down to feed them. Both of these images of a parental love and of a farmer's love for his animals are utilized to picture before us the love of God for his people. This is how their relationship started. God began this relationship with his people by initiating love towards them. It was an act of grace. Let me rephrase this in another way. Israel did not work for that love in the Old Testament. And this is what God reminds them. This love, even in the Old Testament, God reminds them, was not an exchange of favors. Now, sometimes we like to think of the Old Testament as exchanging favors with God. But that is a wrong way to read the Old Testament. God reminds them. And both of these images tell us that when God began loving Israel, it was a one-way street. Why is it an important reminder in Hosea? Because we are tempted to believe that God's present judgment puts into doubt God's love, or even questions if God has loved Israel ever in the first place. Do you ever think this way? Our human nature has this tendency to question God's love when we experience God's judgment. Why? Because the world we live in thinks and defines love as the absence of judgment and judgment as the absence of love. But these verses give a very strong answer. God initiated this love relationship to his people even though they're experiencing judgment right now. Love before judgment. That's the first point of this text. But the second point is love in judgment. Love in judgment. Now the reason why judgment is pronounced against Israel is not because God never loved Israel, but because Israel departed from the Lord. Actually, as early as verse 2 in chapter 11, we are reminded again, again, they, the more they're called, the more they went away. 
Now look at verse 5 again. They shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria will be their king because they have refused to return to me. In other words, despite the Lord's love for his people in their infancy, Israel rejected God's calling. Worst of all, look at verse 7. My people are bent on turning away from me. Now, friends, this is not the picture of a parent rejecting his child. This is a picture of a child who sets his heart on rejecting his parents. No matter how much love the parent lavishes on that child. So the Lord allows him, this child, to experience what he desires. What this child desires. From his infancy, this child desired to turn away from the Lord. And now the Lord will grant him his wish. What Israel did not realize was that turning away from his creator was going to be a very painful experience. The independence Israel was pursuing turned into the most tragic slavery. Friends, this is the price of sin. Sin at first promises us freedom and independence, but in reality it brings slavery, and in the end it brings death. And this is Hosea's message. Do we believe that? And yet, after all this, we go to chapters, to verses 8, 9, 10, and 11. An incredibly powerful turn in the events of this book. God's love comes through in spite of the judgment he just pronounced. Look at verse 8. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? God's judgment causes a problem, not just for God's people, but for God himself. God's judgment causes a tension in God's own heart. Even though God brings judgment, he cannot give up Ephraim. He cannot hand over Israel. And as we look at the end of this verse, verse 8, Look at what God says. My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. And verse 9 goes on to show the change of plans. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim. For I am God and not man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. Wow. What a picture of God's compassion. What a picture of God's tension in his own heart as he, as he is watching, as he is dealing with a judgment that he himself has brought against this rebellious child. A number of things are happening in this passage. First, notice what is the cause of this change of plans. It is not Israel's reaction. It is not God saying, okay, if you really become good, I'll change my plans. Look at what causes God to, to change. Look at what God causes God to change his plans. He says, for I am God and not man, the Holy One in your midst. This is the reason why God is staying faithful to his people despite the unfaithfulness of his wife. Remember Hosea and Gomer? 
Remember how God asked this prophet to marry this prostitute and to love her even though she continued to be in prostitution? And then after a long time, God said, go and love her again? No human being would think about doing that. No human being would think about doing what Hosea did. And yet that was a picture of God's faithfulness to his people, of God coming back in compassion towards his people. Why? Because God is not like us. God is different than us. God could love us when we were his enemies. Man cannot do that. God can love us when we are unfaithful to him. We cannot do that. That's why Jesus in the New Testament told his disciples, if you love only those who love you, what unusual thing do you do? Love your enemies. That is the way God loves. God's commitment to be holy in their midst is the foundation of this change of plans in God's own heart. Let me say this very clearly. God changed his plan not because he loves you and me. God changed his plans because he's different than us. God's holiness is the foundation of God's love. Now, oftentimes we hear these two characteristics of God set in opposition. Either God's love on one side or God's holiness on the other side. Well, Hosea 11 tells us that God is love because he's holy. God loved us when we were his enemies. God still loved us. So God's commitment to be holy in their midst is the foundation of this change of plan. But the second thing that's happening in these verses is that the impression we get from these verses is that God will stop destruction and that immediately and that Israel will no longer be exiled. But if we keep reading the Old Testament, we find out that God did exile them after all. Israel was exiled in 722 B.C. into Assyria, and Judah was exiled two centuries later in Babylon. Here's a dilemma. Does this mean that the change of plan in God's own heart was just fictitious? Is this like the promise that the government makes us? I'll bring change, but nothing changes. Is this what's happening here? The answer is not at all. And the answer is found in the very next verse, verse 11, 10 and 11. We find a picture of how God changed his plans. Look at verse 11. They shall come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria. And I will return them to their homes, declares the Lord. Now this verse assumes that they will be exiled so that they can come back from exile. This text assumes that Israel will go through the judgment, but God will bring them back. This means that God's change of plans meant that judgment was not permanent, but temporary. That's how God changed his plans. Had God not changed his plans, his judgment would have brought total destruction. 
But he did not do that. The way God changed his plans was through his commitment to keep a remnant. Now the concept of a remnant is a huge, huge concept for us if we, if we are to understand the Old Testament well. It means that God's promises are given not to specific individuals, but to his people as a whole. God clearly brought judgment against the generation of the Israelites during Hosea's time. That generation experienced God's righteous judgment. Yet God remained faithful and loving towards Israel by keeping a remnant and by bringing up a new generation that sought the Lord. Now the notion that God will bring back his people was foretold twice in the book of Hosea, in chapter 1 and chapter 2. So the way God is continuing to show his love and commitment in the midst of judgment is by keeping a remnant, a portion of Israel, who will turn to the Lord. This means, dear friends, that those who were not part of the remnant were totally destroyed, and rightfully. We may have a hard time. We may have a very hard time understanding how God was able to continue the judgment of that generation and yet continue to love Israel through keeping a remnant. These are hard things for the, 20, for the minds of the 21st century earth dwellers. The reason for this difficulty is because we're stuck on thinking about God's plans for my life only or primarily. We're stuck in a very individualistic way of thinking. And the God of the Old Testament was thinking through corporate identity. He made promises to his people. This means, dear friends, let me ask you, what typically happens when my plans for my life don't match up with God's plans for his people? Uh, this means, let me ask you, what are you typically most interested to find out? God's plans for your life or God's plans for his people? Let me put it in another more radical way. The Bible is full of God's plans, not for your life, but for his people. And he wants your life to be a part of his people. That's the connection. But when my life and the plans for my life seem to be more important than the plans God has for his people, which one typically gets left out? Put aside. Honestly. The reason why we have a hard time thinking, why is it that God destroyed that generation, those individuals in Hosea's time, and yet he was faithful to Israel and to his promises, is because this distinction between individualistic thinking and corporate reality. God made his promises to his people, not to individual believers. Now, he wants individual believers to be a part of God's people, to believe those promises and follow them. How amazing that when Paul wrote Romans, he said in Romans 9, 6, the passage we heard earlier in the service, but it was not as though the word of God had failed. For not all who, are who have or who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Did you hear that? Not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all children of Abraham 
are his offsprings. So Paul makes very clear that national ethnicity alone, even if Israelite, is not enough to be considered God's true people. And later in chapter 9 of Romans, Paul affirms that God's plan was to call out his people to be vessels of glory from among those whom he prepared to be vessels of destruction. This means that God's love is shown not by canceling judgment altogether, but by calling some people out of judgment. And after Paul said this, he quotes Hosea. He says, as indeed he says in Hosea. The book of Hosea is so relevant for, the, for understanding the New Testament. He says, those who are not my people, I will call my people. And her who is not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. So the way God changes his plans is not by canceling the exile, but by promising to maintain a remnant and by promising to bring them back. God's judgment is not final for his people. Yet there are many generations of Israelites who did experience the destruction, and thus they proved to be outside of God's remnant. And that judgment was right and just. And this brings us to the following principle, dear friends. When God deals with his people. Love is not the absence of judgment. And judgment is not the absence of love. When God deals with his people, love is not the absence of judgment, nor judgment the absence of love. God's love does not mean that he will not bring chastisement, but only that the chastisement will not be final for those who truly belong to the remnant. When God loves us, that does not mean that there's going to be no consequences for sin or that there's going to be no accountability for our sin. God will bring his chastisement because he loves us. This also means that when God's children experience his judgment, their reaction will be a great indicator if they are truly the children of God and if they truly belong to the remnant. God's true children will return and they will be restored even after the judgment has taken place. So let me ask you this morning, do you think of love as the absence of judgment? Or that judgment is the absence of love? How is this supposed to play out at the church level? I'm asking you as an individual, but let's ask, let's ask ourselves at the church level. How does this play out at the church level? In a few simple ways. Let me say, do we as a church view accountability and confrontation of sin as lack of love? Or here's another one. Why have so many churches abandoned the biblical practice of church discipline? Is it because they say it is not loving to judge someone? Have you heard that one? Or because, and here's another one, they don't trust in God's power to restore his people even through judgment. 
Hosea is clearly telling us that God has a power to restore after he brings judgment. And those who repent and turn to the Lord prove to be members of God's remnant community. And notice how, how they will come back, how this remnant will come back. Look at verse 10. His children shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like birds from Egypt. Notice, they shall come trembling. There will be a renewed reverence for God. Their, their causal and dispassionate, their casual and dispassionate regard for God will be replaced by a holy trembling. You may say, that, that's the Old Testament, that's not the New Testament. Um, as Paul taught in the book of Philippians, the letter of joy, Paul said in Philippians 2.12, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Friends, a remnant will return to the Lord with a renewed sense of reverence towards God. So the principle is that when God restores from judgment, he gives us a greater fear of the Lord. He gives us a renewed zeal. He purifies us of our unholy and sinful pursuits. Just like Hebrews 12, where we are told that God disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. This means not only that the Bible rejects the idea that love is the absence of judgment, and judgment is the absence of love, but quite the opposite is the case. According to the Bible, love is the presence of judgment, and judgment is the presence of love. Let me repeat that again. According to the Bible, Love is a presence of judgment, and judgment is a presence of love. Now, if judgment is a sign of God's love, let's see how Israel is encouraged to respond. Love in judgment is manifested by the occasion God gives to Hosea's generation to respond before it's too late. God will keep a remnant, but Hosea's generation, will they be part of it? God promised to keep a remnant, but will Hosea's generation be part of it? Well, Hosea turns in chapters 11, I'm sorry, sorry, chapters 12 and 13 to a few examples from their past in order to encourage his generation in particular to turn to the Lord. I will not unpack all the examples. There are four examples I would like for you to look at. The example from Jacob in chapter two, 12, verse 2. There's the example from the Feast of Tents um, later in chapter 12. There's the example of Moses in verse 13 of chapter 12. And the example of choosing a king, choosing Saul in chapter 13. In each of these, and we could stay and unpack these, I will let you do that on your own. But in each of these examples, God is trying to bring Israel's attention to say, look at the way you have done it in the past. You have trusted, you have desired a king for yourself. And remember when Israel came to Samuel and asked for a king so they could be protected and, and the king to carry their wars like the other nations? And God says in his judgment, where is your king? He's not able to protect you. And God says, going back to the lesson of, of, the, of the tents, God says, I will bring you back in tents. Well, that was a reminder of how God brought him out of, out of Egypt. The only difference now was that Israel was, was rich. Then Israel was a slave. 
to be in tents out of Egypt meant they were totally depending on God because they had nothing else to depend upon. But now that's changed. Now Israel was rich. And God says, I'm bringing you back to tents. It's as if God is saying, I'm, I'm, take, I'm making you file for bankruptcy. Move out of the house. Go back to the tents. It, it is a message of doom. But God says, this, I want to take you back from where we started, our love relationship. When I carried you in my arms, when you depended on me, when you lived in tents, I want to bring you back there. I want to bring you back to my love. But I want to remind you, for the Israelites, that meant judgment because God was taking away all their stuff, including taking them away from their land. Friend, where do you turn when God takes away stuff from your life? Where do you turn when God takes away health, a job, a career? Do you complain? For Hosea's generation, God reminds him, I want to take you back to the tent so we restart this relationship again. That's why God is bringing this judgment in order to bring them back to his love for them. But friends, if we keep on reading in, at the end of chapter 13, Ephraim refuses to repent. They refuse to learn from history. And in verse 12 of chapter 13, look at what a horrible promise. This is one of the worst things that can be said about anyone. The iniquity of Ephraim is bound up. And his sin is kept in store. This is the worst thing that can be said of anyone. That God is keeping up our sins in store for the day of judgment. Ephraim's destiny of death was determined because they refused to return to the Lord. Look at verse 14. Shall I ransom them from the power of Sheol? Shall I redeem them from death? O death, where, is your, where are your plagues? O Sheol, where is your sting? In God, God's answer to all these questions and to Israel's situation, to that generation, was compassion is hidden from my eyes. What a terrible... What a terrible phrase, answer to hear. Their destiny is their death. Yet, look at verse 15. It says that in the present time, he's still flourishing among his brothers. This is what makes the situation so difficult. In other words, Israel, just like Adam, died when, just like Adam died when he rebelled against God, yet in his physical appearance, Adam still lived. God is, is, is declaring death on that generation of Israelites, even though they kept flourishing among their brothers. You may ask, well, according to this ending, it appears that there is no more hope for that generation. According to this plan, loving judgment does not work because they have not returned to the Lord. Where is the change of plans that God promised at the beginning of these chapters? Well, there are two hints in these chapters that tell us about, about God's love in the middle of judgment. Two hints. First one, go back to Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. Out of Egypt I have called my son. Is a phrase that is used word for word 
in Matthew chapter 2, verse 15, to describe the birth of Christ. To describe Jesus' escape from Egypt as a fulfillment of God's promise, prophecy. In other words, Hosea's generation was doomed because of its disobedience, but God maintained his promise to keep to them not in judgment, but in compassion by bringing Christ to them. By maintaining a remnant, and through that remnant, by bringing the Savior into the world. God's true Son, God Himself, came to Israel to relive the history of Israel, but at every point, Jesus obeyed, even to the point of death and death on the cross. And now, it is only those who believe in Christ who are called the true people of God, the remnant. So God is now calling His people from the east and the west to come to Him and to belong to the new people that God is forming. Friends, the love of God is present in judgment, ultimately in the cross of Christ. His death on the cross is a picture of God's love and judgment in the same act. God loves prior to judgment. God loves in judgment. But most importantly, God loves through judgment. Because by judging Christ on the cross, God loved us, showed us his love for us. God loves us through judgment. Friends, by judging Christ in our place, God loves us. God's love and judgment are not opposite extremes. This world would want to tell you and convince you that they are. But if you're a Christian... If you have any idea about the love of Christ and what happened on the cross, God's love and judgment are not opposite extremes. They're two sides of the same coin. And the same love and judgment we are called to carry out when we confront one another in love and call one another to turn away from pride, from lying, from deciding to divorce a spouse on unbiblical grounds, from adultery, from living selfish, independent lives. This love and judgment we're called to carry out when we do church discipline. Not as an eternal punishment, but as a temporary judgment, as a rehearsal of what may happen to us if we do not turn to Christ in repentance. Friends, dear church members, let me ask you, can we worship a God who loves us in judgment and through judgment? Or would we rather worship a God who loves us without judgment? But such a God would be a God of our own making. May God keep us away from turning him into an idol of our own making. Love in judgment. That's the way God does it. Amen. Let's pray.